0: This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog2Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Ariel Adams of the Superlative podcast. My guest today is Mr. Michael Heyman, and he is the co-founder of the watch enthusiast group O.C. Chrono in Orange County, just south of here in Los Angeles. Michael, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Ariel. Appreciate it.
0: So my first encounter with O.C. Chrono was probably several years ago at an event, probably, you know, uh, in South Coast Plaza, or maybe some of the members had come up. And it was very nice because finally, there was a California-based Watch enthusiast group. It's funny because I know that's very specific, like Orange County. But do you realize that you were your your group was the first ever California-based enthusiast group uh, of its type that I've ever met? Did you know that? I did
1: not know that, and I do recall uh, the event. Um,
0: yeah, you know, but no, I, I wasn't
1: aware of that. What I what I knew is it was hard to find other uh, other watch people to hang out with. And so we felt like we needed to do something about that.
0: I want to explain some context because I think it's very important to understand some of the nuances. And Because from the outside, it can be very confusing, you know. Watch enthusiast groups, collectors clubs. There is a whole microcosm of different types of, we'll just call them groups and clubs out there, of various types. um, And they're really about basically creating, I'll call them, like at their best friendship groups around a shared hobby, which is watches. When I first started all this in 2007, the blog to watch, I had the same impetus I'm sure you had, Michael, which was just to find other people that had the same hobby as me. I went out um, onto the internet to do so. We didn't exactly have watch enthusiast meetup groups um, at the time because I had no idea how many people living around me liked the same thing. I thought people were far away, which was interesting. What year would you say did the sort of watch meetup group really start to be a thing as far as your recollection?
1: Yeah. So for us, I can remember uh, kind of 2015 ish, um, hanging out with the same couple of friends uh, on an almost weekly basis. And invariably the talk was always, you know, watches and occasionally cars, but mostly watches. And so you know, as time went on, we kind of started looking at each other. It's getting a little weird. You know, it, it's just the three of us. And we're just talking about the same things over and over again. And, you know, at the same time, we were hearing about Red Bar and you know, so many amazing things happening in other places, predominantly the East Coast. And so we thought it's time to, to maybe do something about that. And I think our first meetup, first actual official meetup was... 2017, uh, probably in the springtime, as I recall. And that was the first time we ever kind of put it out there and to see if anybody would actually appear.
0: So let's back up a second here because I think it's so interesting to think about the psychology. And again, I want to separate watches as this consumer. Focused behavior where you go out and you buy this object to wear it from this other part of the culture, which is uh, it's a hobby. Uh, It's similar, maybe to the way people are into sports, in that there's you know different teams and a lot of stats uh, and allegiances. It's obviously also related to fashion and things like that. But the idea is that there's what I call a friendship vector. As an adult, it's oftentimes difficult to form new friendships, and we need sort of hobbies and shared activities to do that. And watches are, for a lot of people, that friendship vector, where it might be some other hobby with others, but we're talking about people that, even though they have friends in other ways, watches is their primary social outlet. And I think it's very interesting that there is a community out there. And would you agree, Michael, that there are people, especially adults, that watches are their primary social out- outlet. Other than friends uh, that they get through sort of work and family, they make new friends basically exclusively through the watch hobby, right?
1: 100%. I, I can't tell you, you know, how many, because it is just vast and, and too many, how many of these people that we have the pleasure of getting to know, you know, have... have really built their entire social circle and and friendship groups on,
0: on watches it's crazy it really is crazy without having this group a lot of people would be kind of lonelier and i remember before the groups came into fashion you had uh people sort of doing it vicariously people would listen to videos that would do on youtube um, or or older podcasts that would do and they would they would listen as though I was chatting to them, and they would actually tell me. I, "You know, They're like, I'm at home alone, but at least I feel like I have a friend who's also into this. The ability to go out and meet people who also share this hobby is a kind of a unique phenomenon. I mean, you're right. They have it in cars, but it's so much more well-established uh, where you're going to sort of go and, and hang out uh, to appreciate cars in a group, especially here in Southern California. I don't know of other things out there. I'm trying to find analogs, right, Michael? Like, are there other things other than watches that will get adult men to get together to hang out? I guess sports is kind of one of it. Like, what are the other categories? There's just not that many, right? No, there's not.
1: As you were talking, I was trying to think of some comparisons that could be drawn to what we do um, in the watch community. And I really can't come up with any, you're right, cars, but... That's been going on, you know, especially in Southern California for, you know, decades, you know, since before either of us walked on this planet. And, you know, so that's that's its own thing. It has its own culture. But the, the reality is, other than that, watches are really the only thing that I've ever seen that people can, you know, can come together or choose to come together in this way. And we've seen, you know, friendships form. We've seen... You know people get married. We've seen people you know take vacations together. and you know, it's it's crazy the depths of some of these relationships and friendships, and it's it's been pretty special.
0: One of the things that I think a lot of people don't understand is when you guys get together, what is it that you do? What is it that actually makes it um an incentive to not just communicate with these people? but figure out a time and, and, and actually go physically hang out with people. I think there's some good answers, but I think it's very important to explain, you know, what actually gets people out of the house when it comes to this hobby.
1: Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking that question, actually, because it's, I think, the best advertisement for not just OC Chrono or the Chrono Group, but for, you know, watch enthusiast communities in general. Uh, you know, I, what happens is so organic that it almost defies... Um, explanation because it's kind of like breathing. You just do it, and so for us, what that looks like is people coming together in, in some kind of fun locations um, to you know have a beer or not have a beer and talk about the latest releases. And ultimately, those conversations turn into you know how's the family doing and you know how was your your most recent you know trip to wherever and those kinds of things. And it's amazing to me by the end of the evening watches are not really even the topic of conversation anymore it's gone much deeper than that and and i think it's also important you know to you know to say that it, i think that the idea of a of a watch meetup could be really intimidating and it, it always was for me you know i'll never forget you know showing up at a at a watch meetup in la that was being hosted by a couple of people who are well-known in the community from the East Coast. Um, And it was, I was so afraid to walk into that room because one, I'd never been to anything like that. Two, there's this perception um, that exists in so many parts of our culture that, you know, I or mine is not enough, you know, that my watches are not going to match up to the watches that are in the room and those kinds of things. And so. We've worked really hard. And I know a lot of other groups have too to kind of tear down those barriers because it should never be about that. And I think you know as well or better than anybody that you know true you know true watch people you know they're just into these tiny little machines and all their nuances. Whether they whether it be a you know million dollar you know, Richard Neal or you know a, you know five hundred dollar Seiko, it isn't really the issue. And and so egos um, for us, anyhow, you have just not been a thing, and you know. So, along with the how we do it, you know, and and what happens is this, you know, ever pervasive feeling of camaraderie based on watches that has nothing to do with status, um, and and I love that because I'm personally intimidated in those situations.
0: We we got to unpack that a little bit because. You're talking about what you're not, but making it as though everyone sort of assumes what you know what, what that's all about and understands where these personalities and these egos can come in. I mean, let's back up for a second. Yeah. Watch enthusiasm as a hobby is about celebrating the self. Okay. Correct. Wearing a nice watch means that you want to celebrate you. It's not a bad thing, but it is a it is a ego heavy hobby for better or worse. Oftentimes for better because there's very interesting people you meet who are fellow watch lovers, but people have various levels of maturity across various spectrums of life. And when you put big people with big egos in a room with other people with big egos, there can be con- conflicts, right? And so I think it's very interesting to distinguish the um, that there are people that are very excited about watches and can get along, but also there's people that are very excited about themselves and their view of the world and their opinions. And diplomacy and being a watch lover are two separate and disparate skills that must be learned <laughs> independently, right? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. <laughs> without
0: any doubt. And,
1: and what's interesting is uh, you know, I've always found that the group, whatever the group might be, whether it's a work situation, whether it's a sporting situation, or in this case, you know, a, a group of people that have an interest in, in watches. The group kind of defines ultimately its, its acceptable level of those kinds of things. So I would say certainly within our group and every group, you've got people who are really proud of either the collection that they've built or the watch that's on their wrist or the story that's behind the watch that's on their wrist. And so in that regard, I you know you experience egos. But the group has kind of set, you know, uh, a limitation on that that suggests that, you know, going much beyond an appreciation of these things and turning it into something that, you know, it's not meant to be and something perhaps negative um, just isn't acceptable. And so what happens is we'll see people show up. And, you, you know, they, they've got a little bit of that swagger. You know, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of swagger every now and then. But, you know, they've got a little bit of that swagger. But one of two things happens. Either that gets toned down and it allows them to truly just kind of be the watch the, the watch geek that they are. Or they don't come back. And, and we've never had to ask anybody not to come back. But, you know, people sometimes deselect themselves. And, and it's because the group isn't feeding, you know, that that desire to to stand out and stuff, and so yes, you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's no way to avoid ego. It's a it's a component in every human being, um, and at the same time, the group kind of manages it just by its you know its own existence and the way it approaches things.
0: There's an interesting species of person that goes to these events that I see from time to time. Maybe they're a little bit less common today because they've been weeded out. But I'd like your opinion on this. It's the watch enthusiast poser. And what I mean by that is they're not they don't really like watches. They want to look like they like watches. Yeah. They want to get a watch that makes them appear as though they have good taste and some culture. They're there to be accepted, I guess. But I don't really understand what their aim is because I've always thought that watch enthusiasm would be truly boring if you didn't actually like watches. You've seen these people. What do you think is their motivation?
1: I, it's you're absolutely spot on it's, it's really interesting and i don't see them often thankfully but you do see them and, and motivation is hard for me to understand but in this age of social media and the next instagram photo you know i think there's a lot of that behavior driven that way we've you know culturally you know not to get not to get too deep into the Into the sociological weeds, but culturally, we've become somewhat materialistic, and ever more so as time goes goes by. And so there there is a perception that you know that more is better, more more money, flashier things, yeah, the fastest car, the the most expensive watch. And I would emphasize, and this is where it comes out, I would emphasize the most expensive watch because. If you're a not if you're not a watch person, then you know your only real motivation probably is status, and you know all of a sudden it doesn't really matter if you even like the watch. It's just what you think, you know, Instagram, and everybody else that might see the watch thinks is the watch, and I think it sometimes gets carried to the to the next level where okay, now posting the watch along with the car and the clothes and the vacations and all this stuff, it, it doesn't give you as much feedback as you want. And so then you show up at a watch meetup and, and we do see them and they're easy to spot, you know, not because of, not because of the watch they have on. I mean, you know, somebody walking into the room with a 5711 on, you know, could be the most genuine watch person that you've ever met. Um, but they could also be, you know, this other person that we're talking about. And and it always kind of comes up in conversation. And that will always be, you know, them to whoever they're speaking to. You know, what would you pay for that? How much is that worth? And, you know, what they're really saying is, ask me what I pay. <laughs> ask me what it's worth, because I know and I want to tell you. And so, you know, there's a lot of that. But fortunately, not as much in our community as I think exists in the universe, Um yeah, the, the watch enthusiast community is truly that. It's you know, it's usually the most wonderful people, and they're they're driven first by watches. But you know, the the old saying, and I didn't create it, nor did our group. But you know, I came for the watches, I stayed for the people. They they very quickly just you know identify with the other people around them, and, and again, some of that ego gets left
0: inside. When you go to these events, obviously one of the things that happens is people you know, show off the watches they have, not in an egotistical way, but literally check out what I have and they compare. It's a way of, you know, seeing new watches and things like that. And inevitably that does tend to probably more purchasing behavior for you. How important is it in your experience that people get to sort of see And touch watches before they make a purchase decision. I find that sometimes people end up liking things that they never thought they would like, or they have a lot of things on their purchase radar um, because they got a chance to experience in person. And I really feel that that in-person experience is crucial. Today, we live in a world where I think you learn about brands and products online first, but I think that seeing that in person for a lot of people, not everyone, but for a lot of people is a necessary part of the purchase making decision process. So talk a little bit. About, you know, we talk a lot about the friend stuff and we'll get back to that. But in terms of being a watch buyer, um, describe that as, as, as a function of these meetups.
1: These groups, ours included, I think have a tremendous amount of collective influence on the buying decisions of their members or people who might be you know, kind of first time uh, in that environment. And you're right. I mean, you're getting to go hands-on with things that you've maybe seen online, you've read about, you've, you know, engaged in, you know, in some type of conversation about, but just haven't handled. Or, you know, or maybe you've handled in a boutique or an AD, but haven't handled in a different way. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think a lot of people, in a boutique or, or at their, you know, authorized dealer, they'll hold the watch. They might even put the watch on their wrist, but their interaction, the physical interaction with that watch might last 30 seconds to, to 90 seconds at most before they're handing it back to the representative of, of that, of that store. And then it becomes visual again. They'll look at it. They'll, you know, they're kind of like sharks, they'll stalk it through, you know, as they walk around the, uh, the showroom floor, whereas at a watch meetup, you know, it's, it's common it's, it's, it's quite normal. And in fact, it's encouraged, you know, you see something that you're interested in, you know, you engage in that conversation and pretty soon the, the owner of that watch is putting that watch on your wrist and telling you, you know, keep it on for, you know, for the next 20 minutes or next hour. And in some cases, and I know you've heard these stories in some cases, Take it home, you know, take it home and you know we'll connect in a day or two or in a week or two, and, and I'll get it back from you then. Um, and so there's a lot more physical interaction. There, there's also this phenomenon of of other opinions in the room. You know, if if you walk into again the, the boutique or the AD, you're you're gonna get. The opinion that you expect to get, which is this watch that you're looking at, you're handling, is the most amazing thing that you've ever seen and likely ever will see. Versus, you know, the person who's now owned the watch for you know for X period of time, and you're talking to them about it, and they're telling you, "Here's what I like about it," but let me tell you what I don't really like about it, um, because I don't think any one of us has found the watch that takes every single box. I mean, it happens, but it's rare. And so there's this this ability to, to tap into not just the physical object, but the experience of the owner, and that to me is is invaluable. Um, in you know in in that sense, I, I think that that's just such an important thing, and, and it happens. It happens on a regular basis. And then there's another phenomenon that occurs, and in fact, we just had our we just had our February meetup um, last week, and a gentleman who we've communicated with um, online. We, we try not to be obstructionists in terms of we want new people to come, but we're also trying to be careful with with who knows where we're meeting and when we're meeting. Um, and so this guy, we had communicated a little bit for maybe a month or two, and it didn't never quite fit his schedule to come hang with us. Well, he came um, last week, as first time we met in person, and he lays on the table these, and I, I won't get into to infinite detail because it's a whole podcast. He lays down the first thing he lays down is a uh, Moritz Grossman that is not just a watch by a really talented independent, you know, watch manufacturer, but it's an important watch of theirs. It's it's the first watch that had their in-house caliber, and in it. You know the first one they made. He lays down a, a Philippe de Um, He lay, yeah, and it just went on and on like this. And so then something else becomes, you know, happens here, and I call it the museum effect. All of a sudden, now we're in the presence of watches that we would never in a million years buy. At least I wouldn't. Um, although I'd love to, but I'm just not, you know, not going to probably be doing that ever. But these are watches that I'll never ever see if I don't see them this way. Not in person, anyhow, and so you know it's like going to a museum, except one where this guy who you know is so humble and so kind and so generous because he was willing to bring these watches, he was willing to let people handle them and put them on their wrists and you know everything else. I mean, that's an experience you can't get anywhere else uh, than your local watch meetup. I mean, it's it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I think that. You know, while you were talking about all that, I was reminded of my experience with meetup groups and why they began. And it's really related to having access to product. People like me who are in a media position, have a lot of unfettered access to watches. So I can take it for granted that I'm able to handle and compare lots of things that I could never afford. But I think what was happening um, over the period of years when people like myself were disseminating all the media I have is the, the lay consumer realized there's so many options out there. And there really wasn't an opportunity for most people to see a lot of those watches Um, in in their cities. And if they did, they were in watch stores, which, as you mentioned, are not the most inviting environments all the time. Some of them are great and are really fantastic places for watch enthusiasts, but they're not all designed for that. They're not all there to to show you watches all day and chit-chat. So the watch meetup group um, actually evolved because regular people needed a place to see watches. And like you said, ask other people like them, you know, what kind of problems do you have with it um is it comfortable what's servicing like you know what what else do you recommend what do you think i'd like people recognize that it's a lot of money to wear a watch you really only enjoy it after putting a lot of time and effort into knowing what it is you're getting and you either became like an armchair encyclopedia reader uh, where you're reading, you know, I mean, look, a blog to watch has over 11,000 articles alone, you know? Right. <laughs> like, good luck right. getting through all that. Most people need just a, a conversation group. Um, so what I think happened is people came for the watches, but stayed for the friends, like you said. And that's where it became sort of more of a, a an established thing that there was groups. I guess the next part of the question that I'm curious about, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, this is a great, you know, advertisement for the group. Is there a business model? Why do you guys keep doing it? Is there money? And is that something that all all, all of the groups out there do? Talk a little bit about the sort of why. And again, is this a business for you?
1: Thanks. Uh, absolutely isn't. Um, I've been asked this question, um, you know, a lot of times and it's caused me Occasionally, to think, okay, we invest a lot of time in this, and you know, a few of us have invested quite a bit of money in making it making it work the right way. And no, it it, it started very organically, and we felt from the outset that we never really wanted this to become more than an opportunity to bring people together um, over this shared passion of ours. So it, it isn't that we've toyed with. Um, you know, does it make sense to, to have a membership, for example, where you charge um, a, a nominal fee for people that maybe want a slightly different level of experience or those things? And, and so far, the answer has been no. I'm not saying it never will be because, you know, if there's a better way to bring people together, then I always want to hear about that. But so far for us, it's been a non-commercial um, endeavor. We've never taken a dime from anybody, although it is in the early going, people would often offer to, to donate money and, you know, they just wanted to be part of it and they wanted to chip in. And we used to say no, because we were so, you know, just so adamant that, that there never, ever be even the perception of, of that for us. Um, you know, lately we'll do raffles and things. and We'll raise a few money, a few dollars and, and all those dollars go right back into the next meetup or, or some other experience. But we've, you know, we're very loosely organi- organized, We, um, you know, we believe in autonomy, not just, you know, amongst the, the people that are coming, but amongst the individual groups. As I said, you know, from an organizational standpoint, we decided we were getting calls from other cities. Um, people in other cities wanting to, to join and which kind of struck us as funny because there was literally nothing to join. We had no organization. and So we created the Chrono Group just as a way of being able to talk to other people without it being all about Orange County. Um, and as a result of that, I think San Diego started up um you know, around the same time that Arizona did. And, you know, we've got a group and we've got a group in Salt Lake and I'm super proud of this, but it also speaks to the autonomy that we that we really want people to feel. Um, they are, you know, they're Salt Lake City, Chrono. Um, and Actually, we're rebranding a little bit. So it's Chrono Group. You know Salt Lake or group Orange County, but they're they're in Salt Lake, but they have turned themselves into the Utah Horological Society, and talk about a highly organized, well run organization that is hell bent on on education. Um, I mean, that's their their focus. Just like the New York Horological Society, they're you know they've created their own nonprofit. They uh, they've you know they've done just so many amazing things and they, they started out all under the guise of the chrono group and so you know there isn't a lot of of structure not in the not in the you know controlling way i guess our structure is to keep it organic and keep it loose the only the only rules that we've ever had are one don't embarrass us you know i mean don't do anything stupid please um, that's a pretty broad rule and it covers a lot of ground. And I know it's sometimes we need to be more specific, but the other one is, is make it approachable. Um, being approachable is the single most important aspect of this to me. Um, just because again, I've got this, you know, I get really nervous in new groups of people and I don't like to feel that way. And I can't imagine anybody else does. So no, we, we were pretty loosely organized. We did um, a year or two ago, um hire and I, I say it with a smile on my face because he's never gotten paid a dime and, and he knows he never will. We hired a president of the Chrono group, somebody that really had a passion for you know technology and kind of day-to-day um, operations and how can we bring the kind of bring the message to more people. And so we're getting ready to launch some things that will give us maybe a little bit broader reach, but not for the, not with the thought of making more money, but really with the thought of making more fun. Um, you know, I, one of the greatest thrills for me has been traveling around to these groups and, and hanging out with these people. And so there's people in all these cities that have become good friends, um, and who I converse with, if not in person on the phone or, or over email, you know, on almost a daily basis. And you know, so if, was, if there's any selfish motive, that's been it. The, the other thing that we have tried to leverage is, and this kind of gets to you know, the buying experience and, and you know, having access to, to more interesting watches to look at and experience. We've tried to leverage um, the group's numbers to get attention, um, you know, of, of either brands or, or related organizations so that we can simply get to see things um, and get to experience things that maybe we wouldn't if it was just, you know, Mike Heyman out in the world on his own, you know, without, you know, a lot of friends in the, in the business, you know, we're, we're kind of a, you know, we're kind of a pack of, you know, of, of watch enthusiasts roaming the countryside looking for a watch experience And as part of that, we've done a couple collaborations. Um, Again, we've made zero dollars on any of those collaborations. It's all been about experience. And so we did. um, We we have the. the, we're, We're proud to be able to say that we did the first ever collaboration with Grand Seiko of any organization in the world. Um, it was not the kind of collaboration that you know, maybe we think of today. It was simply them doing some engraving on the back of a watch for us that they already produced and, you know, and, and doing maybe a few other nice things for us. But we recently completed and we're getting ready to deliver a collaboration that was done with Nomos and we're, we're talking about some other things. But again, none of that um, has been done at a profit. The Nomos uh, is being delivered at or, well, at cost, Um, and we've actually, um, convinced the AD that we utilized to, to form a relationship with nomos to eat the sales tax. So in essence, people are buying a watch for, you know, at or below what they might've bought it and they walked into the AD on their own. Um, so things like that. And, 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 you know, we, we believe in, in making this be a, a good experience for people and for as many people as we possibly can.
0: You talked about not only yourself, but a couple of other groups being either proudly nonprofit or not you know doing it for the revenue and things like that. Do you think that inherently these types of groups should not be in it as a business model, or is it just not your preference? I think part of the context is that there is no company out there who, for all intents and purposes, makes money off of this. Um, There's undeniably a lot of people out there that want to go to these groups and there's value to them, but it's not really part of the watch industry because it's not really right now um, a business model, right?
1: I I agree with that. And yet I I push back a little bit on the thought that that people aren't making money. I mean, we've seen um, a, a model that while doesn't directly compensate Perhaps the people running the organization becomes almost an event planning operation for various brands. And, and we've seen that. And you do see some type of remuneration in, in that scenario where, okay, I've got access to a list of all these you know, watch enthusiasts. And, and if I can just get them to show up in you know, Boutique XYZ or ADXYZ. That some you know something good will happen for me. I, I've seen that. I don't see a lot of that, but I, I do see some of that. You're right. I, I, there is no business model where, you know, where somebody like me is, you know, is making their living doing this. Do I think there should be? I think that's a choice that everybody makes um, on their own. I've never, you know, I'm a capitalist. I've never once shied away from you know people who have found a, a way to. Spend their time and spend their energy and be compensated for for doing that. But I, you know, the only caveat being that when that happens, it needs, to, in my opinion, be disclosed. There, as you know, there's a lot of conflicts of interest in in the watch universe, and that's true of society in general. One of the things I've enjoyed about a blog to watch is you're not really selling watches. You're you're not. You don't seem to be beholden. To, to just about anybody. And I feel like there's a, a pretty honest um, conversation that you're having with the people who follow what you do. And, Thank you. and it's, it's been a thing that, that I've paid close attention to just, you know, historically because this topic that you, you know, that you asked me about is kind of near and dear to my heart just because I don't mind people, you know, making money at all. I, what I mind is people making money and having maybe a, a particular viewpoint that they're quietly, you know, guiding others towards. That's a different thing. You know, if, if you're going to make money, that's fine. But, you know, make sure that people understand where the conflicts of interest might lie. And And so we've, we've avoided that because we don't, you know, I, I'm not going to say we don't care. We, we obviously care, but we don't care enough about any particular brand and never will to, to get compensated that way. And we don't, we all have jobs and we all are committed to, to our careers. And so from the perspective of the people running, you know, the Chrono Group and stuff and many of the other, you know, enthusiast communities that I'm aware of, you know, it's just really purely about the
0: enjoyment of it. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vial invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW 1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Weil in Switzerland, the RW-1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Weil harmoniously integrates the RW-1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW-1212 skeleton. Raymond Weil is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond weilcom to see more. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayot, the founder of Bayot Watches. My
1: family has been living in the heart of the Swiss watch valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bayot is one of the best-kept secrets here in Switzerland, adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we released a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for $105,000, the biggest regional newspaper
0: came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families, and our prices start at $500. I
1: invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking.
0: Visit ba111od.com. I want to comment there, um, thinking about what you said. Yes, um, it is something that we've put a lot of effort into making sure that uh, we are are uh, an ethically run operation. It was never very difficult. And I think that it has to do with the fact that I came from a legal background where – not only am I aware of the concept of conflict of interest, but I'm also aware of the importance of disclosing any potential conflict right. of interest. And I think that right. having an open and honest conversation allowed everyone to be on the same page. If there's anything that was selling, it was the the watch collecting hobby. Really, that's all I cared about. Is yeah. if you're if you if you appreciate this hobby, uh, that's why you should be here. I don't care what you buy if you buy anything at all. Um, yeah. And. I think that you know being someone that grew up reading magazines I always recognized that if you're if you a publication for a hobby the hobbyist also likes to spend money on that hobby and it's not very weird to say here's information you know about collecting and about the hobby and then here's an ad next to it because there's a lot of companies that like to sell to people like you because they know they sure. have things you like because these are enthusiast-oriented brands. So for me, the the idea of having advertising there was never a conflict of interest any more than it was no. reading a magazine when we were growing up because you knew what was what. But it was that difficulty in making the distinction between what is an ad and what isn't brought on by the lack of policing in the internet era, which is the problem. Most of this bad behavior that we don't like is not legal or is highly frowned upon, but there isn't. A lot of fraud or lying police out there or disclosure police it just doesn't exist. It's only, it's technically illegal for all intents and purposes. It's not enforced.
1: Correct. And and your example of, you know, for example, an ad, it's it's a very different thing, right? Because if I see an ad, I assume that, you know, that there was you know some remuneration for placing that ad. But what I don't assume is is necessarily that the organization whose either website or publication the ad exists on um, is now going to try and, you know, shove whatever it is down my throat. And, and you know, I, we're all pretty smart. I mean, the reality is if they are, we're gonna kind of figure that out really quickly. So the ad thing I'm I'm totally good with. And actually in the in the space that we're in the Chrono Group and OC Chrono, there's, there's this ability, and we've seen others, you know, do this, there's this ability to very quietly without almost anybody realizing it, you know, direct um, people one way or the other way. We used to do, and COVID kind of, kind of killed this off, and I hope that it returns someday, but right now... All of the retail spaces are still very sensitive to these kinds of, of large gatherings, and so I get that. But we used to do—we're blessed here in Orange County with the one of the largest um, retail space, spaces housing um, major watch boutiques in the world, actually South Coast Plaza, as you know. And and you know the Massive. the reality—the reality of, of it—is you can't throw a rock without hitting two of them. And depending on where you're at in South Coast Plaza, you're going to hit a lot more than two. And so we used to do a what we called the watch crawl. Um, I've since heard other organizations doing something similar, which I'm actually thrilled to hear. And we would just pick a few boutiques and we would, you know, ask them if they could maybe make sure that they had some of their more special pieces in that things that maybe come from if we're really lucky from their heritage department or or something. Um, you know, even if they had somebody special that could come speak to us, that would be that would be appreciated. And and we would do this watch crawl and we would go from one to the other to the other and we'd have a great time. And every year we would change, you know, which boutiques we were using and, and do those kinds of things. To me, that's a that's an acceptable thing. People can walk in, they can look around, they can do their thing. Nobody's really trying to sell them. But what's not acceptable is when, you know, say the, you know, the the response group, I was just grabbing a name, you know, gets, you know, gets a hold of somebody like me and says, I'll tell you what, you know, I I want you to to make sure that, you know, you're getting X number of people through the doors on a consistent basis. You know, use these kinds of events if you want, you know, do what you want. That becomes a different thing. And yeah, and I think people see through it largely, but a lot of times they don't, and and they should, you know, and they should at least be aware. So yeah, conflict of interest is really important. You know, in my my profession, much like the legal profession, I, I'm legally obligated to disclose conflicts of interest, and and they exist; they're everywhere in my field, um, and there's no way to avoid them, and so they need to be discussed and and made people made aware of. As long as people are doing that, I, I'm great with it. I really am.
0: I want to add some commentary here. I, of course, I agree with you. But it's important to ask the question, why? Why does these do these conflicts of interest come up all the time? People like to avoid conflicts of interest. And I want to explain is that the problem has to do with the brands themselves. Because what you and I want is for the brands to do business transparently at an arm's length distance with respect for all the parties involved. Like that's the ideal situation, but they don't. And what they do to people, especially members of the media and the groups is saying, Hey, I want to sell watches. What can you help me do to sell watches? And a lot of people are financially dependent on their time and they need to use their time to make money. And they are looking at this to make money and they don't begin by wanting to deceive but they do begin from the premise of i'd like to make money someday. And the first few times that they're offered money, it's essentially to be a salesperson or something like that. The brands want them to operate in that discreet way so they're not, they can't be transparent and they essentially want them to funnel sales to them sure. or work off of some type of commission. So the the default offer from the brands is this non-transparent high conflict of interest thing. I trying to see things from sort of a longer term picture have always rejected those offers and say, I can't do that. I won't do that. I don't want to do that. I'd rather do something that's better for everyone. But I don't think that most people have the discipline to do that uh, or the determination to do that, right? Like it, it requires a lot of pushback. And I have to have a conflict with the brands just so I can have no conflict with the audience, right? And so you have to choose totally. your conflict somewhere. And I'm just explaining what I've had to do. I can't speak for everyone to try to avoid that type of stuff and how I don't see most other you know, aspirational members of the quote-unquote media having the stomach for that. <laughs> No, I,
1: I agree. And I don't see that ever changing either. I, I don't see the environment or the set of circumstances that would cause that to to be different. And, and that's where, you know, to bring it back to the collector community itself, you know, we just have to educate ourselves and we have to be aware and understand how this business works. You know, some of us. You know, some of the people in, in a group like ours, you know, they may own one watch and that's the only watch they're ever going to own. They're just passionate about watches in general and they love reading about watches and talking about watches and they're really proud of the one watch they own. And then others are out there and they're true, truly collecting. They're, they're after, you know, something based on a set of criteria that they've created for themselves. And in some cases, they're spending large sums of money on a, on a regular basis. In either case, I think that educating um, the our community as to how you know kind of the business end of the business works is is important, and and increasing the level of understanding and sophistication is important. Um, without any doubt, and you're right, there there are very few uh, media sources that can claim um, independence from that. You know, it's just they can't.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something that I've always seen interesting, and that is what I call the, the the fight for dominance or the fight for leadership. And it's I like your take on this. I've seen a lot of groups around the world that want to be sort of these watch collector groups. And what ends up happening a lot is there's a power struggle for who's in charge. Certain groups like yours and others seem to have figured out some type of, very relaxed, you know, way of making decisions. Like, I don't know if you guys all have like overriding principles you abide by and that allows you to be on the same page, but there's some, something you've done, but most of the groups tend to fail because it tends, ends up being this like battle for who's in charge. Why does that happen? And, And what is your recommendation on what to do about it?
1: Why it happens goes right back to that conversation that we kind of started with, which was ego.
0: Yeah, and it's hard.
1: It's a hard one for me to explain, but we do see that a lot. You'll you'll see a group kind of start up and seems to be doing really well, and then the next thing you know, you know, it's kind of blown up. And you know, you'll talk to somebody, you'll you'll want to understand what happened, and oftentimes you'll find out it was exactly that scenario where you know, it's kind of this. It sounds very dramatic for something as that's that's supposed to be fun, like a watch oh, enthusiast group, but there's this. Power struggle, um, and it, for me, it comes down to ego. Everybody, not everybody, but you know, multiple people want to be the chief. For us, um, I can't tell you that we've that we've handled that, you know, in a intentional way. But I think unintentionally by having the right objectives for the group, which is you know to promote education, you know, horologically to promote to promote um, camaraderie. And friendship and and to just have a good time if you stay true to those kinds of values it's kind of hard for people to be unhappy and if you look at you know where these power struggles get ugly it's when there is just a little bit of a door open a little bit of unhappiness for some reason maybe maybe the founding you know the founding people you know We're doing a great job but there was one little aspect of what they were doing and somebody seized on that and used that as kind of the open door to to cause chaos and what's ironic about it is it almost never ends in you know in a coup it never it almost never ends in that person or people taking over that group it usually ends in the group dissolving and so you know if there's a guiding principle for us other than you know those things that i just mentioned it is to make sure that that we put the group first at all costs. Um, I've been very clear, you know, in these, in these last six years, six, seven years, that if somebody comes along that has more energy and passion for this than I do, and, you know, and maybe possesses more talent in this area or, you know, whatever it might be, I would gladly, you know, hand the reins over to them or collaborate with them. And, and we've done some of that, you know, we, we we've, We've got some tremendous people that have got tremendous leadership capabilities. And, you know, we've tried to identify those people. And that's how we've, you know, maybe grown other groups and stuff. So that's that's what happens. How to prevent it. I think it's very hard because it's such a, a human characteristic. Um, we're, we're, we're competitive by nature. We're tribal by nature. Um, and those two things often... Are our downfall and it, you can't breed that out of a group um other than to just you know be genuine and and do what it is you say said that you set out to do you know again also there's a personality that each one of these groups has so if the personality of the group um is strong enough and values what the group stands for enough they will they will put down the, the uprising, so to speak, uh, just by being themselves. So, so we've just never had any big issues that way. Um, it's It's gone pretty well.
0: I mentioned that for an interesting reason because I think that Red Bar especially had this idea that they would be like a franchise. Oh, there's going to be Red Bars everywhere, and the Red Bar name right. is going to be associated with – A particular type of activity. And while there are other red bars, there's really only one, you know, Adam Cranioti's red bar and the other ones are are just red bar by name. And I've come to the conclusion quite some time ago that there's no franchising in this space. There might be watch collector groups all around the world, but other than them being watch collector groups around the world, that's all they're going to have in common. They're going to have their own leadership, their own interests, their own events, there's something about these groups where they're going to remain small and intimate and, and local, regional, specific yeah. to that culture. And I think that there's a beauty in that. But I think it's also important for the people who might also be like, oh, this is the next big thing. You know, like, I'm not right. sure if it's the next big thing business wise.
1: I, I couldn't agree more. Adam uh, is a, has been a good friend of mine over these last several years. In, in that, you know, he's, you know, at least in a recognized way, you know, the obvious um, kind of founding person for, you know, for this whole space. And you're right. I mean, there's Red Bar New York, started by Adam Craniotis and, and one or two others in collaboration. And yes, it, it kind of, at least from outside, appears that you know, initially, maybe there was this, you know, this thought that you could franchise it. And I, I think recognizing that at least currently nobody has come up with a, a way of doing that is, is a great starting point. Acknowledging that each each group has its own character and its own personality. Each geographic location has its own character and personality. It has its own culture. And then embracing that, you know, so I'll go back to the example of Salt Lake City for us. I don't know why, and I probably will never understand why, but in Salt Lake City, the watch community is made up of more, there's a higher percentage of actual watchmakers, people with real technical, you know, ability and skill that either have worked or currently working in, in that industry. And it's a very, you know, very technically driven technically competent group. And so it makes perfect sense that a group like that might found the Utah Horological Society. Um, in Orange County, it's not what we do. It's not who we are. It's not the makeup. And understanding, that I think is really important. The other thing that we've done is, I, you know, I like, as I said, to travel around and, and engage with these groups um, when I can. And you know we we said that we would never get so big that we couldn't go drop in at least once a year on every group that might be you know identifying themselves as part of the chrono group not so that we could you know see if they're doing it right you know but so that we could just enjoy them you know and and so you're right the the franchising of the watch enthusiast space so far i don't think has worked you know for those who who maybe thought it would work that way, and for those that you know, are, you know, are trying to do it, you know, uh, here's the advertisement: don't, um, you know, it, it's not what the community needs, it's not what the community, at least in my experience, wants, and it's not going to be profitable. It, it there, there's no, there's no moral or ethical way to make it profitable, in my opinion.
0: So let's let's take this last several minutes we have and talk about what the community does need. I think we've talked a lot about some of the interesting pitfalls that can occur in this space and discussing why it might be and, and how it's important to get around them there's a lot of enjoyment. But what is it that you'd like the industry to do? What directions do you want them to move in? Because obviously they can encourage this, right? They can make your life easier by making it um, more convenient to sort of hang out and talk about watches. You want to do it sort of your own way. It, it's you know, I think that's really the, the 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 core wisdom out of all this is groups of friends like to hang out with one another and talk about a brand. Uh, they want to get together and all see the new watches at the same time and they want to share their opinions and they'd love to be hosted by the brand but then the day they don't want to be like had their hands held by the brand like this is a behavior which is here to stay and i think it's great i think it's great that there's these groups of friends around the world that want to have their own trips to the manufacturer, want to have their own events in town with the brand, want to sometimes, like you said, make their own sets of watches with some unique uh, decoration or, or, or design element or something like that. I think this is great for the industry. So I guess, again, back to the question, what things can the watch industry do to make it better for you and groups like you? <laughs>
1: I, I think, you know, the first of all, I have to say I feel like the industry since we started doing this and certainly certainly since you started doing this has gotten a little more aware of enthusiast groups. Now, that's not to say that they're anywhere near where we would want them to be, but they've become more aware. You see it a little bit in some of these kind of brand Brand-sponsored or at least brand-supported groups, and yeah, the most obvious one that comes to my mind are you know the group that have always identified themselves as the Panoristi, started not by the brand um, but certainly supported a little bit by the brand and in positive ways, you know, as far as I can tell. Um, so they've they've paid a little more attention than perhaps they might have done you know a decade or two ago. But what could they do, you know, beyond that? I, I think. You know, access. And when I say access, not necessarily access to the hottest watch for us to buy, although we would never, you know, if if our members had increased access to hard to get watches, I I think that's only good for our members. So I would never, never argue that. But access to, you know, some of those special things that exist in perhaps their archives, some of the special people that they either employ or engage with. You know, in a in another way, people that can enhance the experience um, and things that can enhance the experience of a watch collector always appreciate it. I, I think, and this has been a hard one for us. Um, and we've we've bumped into it so many times when we're organizing events. I don't like, other than that watch crawl that I described uh, earlier. I don't like doing a lot of boutique events. I don't like doing a lot of, of events at ADs. We we've done some, but. But, you know, kind of unique things. But I would love to see brands, when we do approach them, um, not wonder about what their return on investment is going to be. And I get it. They're in business and, and they should be thinking about those things on some level. But to recognize that simply having access to, you know, to a group of collectors who are passionate about what they happen to be doing um, is is maybe return on investment enough, and might lead to, you know, might lead to some good things for them. I I think brands have still a long ways to go in figuring out what it means to truly build a relationship, um, and as long as you're you know you're buying their watches and you're you know handing over your hard-earned cash you know then you've got a relationship but the moment you aren't doing that or you stop doing that that relationship tends to change in my experience and i would love it if brands started to embrace their local groups you know, or allowing their local boutiques or the or the local ad to embrace these local groups um and not let the first question be okay what's our return on investment i, I can remember um, preparing for one of those watch crawls and a brand who I won't, you know, I won't throw under the bus. Um, was, you know, when I approached them about giving us access for 45 minutes on, on one evening. And, you know, if they wanted to, they could pour champagne or, you know, or sparkling water for all I cared. Um, the first question was literally, what's our ROI? And that's a big put off. Um, I get it. I'm in business. I understand business. But you know I when when we're talking about a very you know large number of people walking into your boutique, your ROI is determined by how good the people are that you've got on staff you know in that moment. It's determined by the you know relationships that you're trying to build and those kinds of things. It's not determined by you know us. I'm not there to sell anything. And so I think brands maybe you know could still be better at, and understanding that having said that I know that there are local boutiques in different marketplaces that have kind of figured that stuff out they've just done it locally on their own they've kind of not paid as much attention maybe to their marketing budget as their as you know the corporate office would like them to and and or they've just given access to, to people for special things I, you know those kinds of things really matter um, and and they they do go a long way but you know I, I think the last thing is helping find the watch community, find new ways, and better ways to come together and to educate themselves. You know, these brands have access to so much knowledge and so, you know, such a wealth of history. And, you know, it'd be great if they could share that a little more frequently. And I think what, what we would all find is that, you know, the, the rising tide raises all ship uh, theory applies there.
0: What do you think about the future of this sort of I don't want to call it a limited edition, but the special watch made for the group. I actually love this idea. I think that 20, 30 years from now, we're going to go back as collectors and we're going to see all these insane... Small yeah. cosmetic versions of this and that, and they'll have, you know, it'll it'll be like wearing, you know, like we're into vintage T-shirts, you know, we'll be like, we don't even live in Salt Lake City, but check it <laughs> out, I'm wearing the cool Salt Lake City <laughs> Collectors Club version of this. Oh, look, they liked blue and orange, isn't that funny? You know, like there's going to be all these crazy watches out there in the market, so I'm excited by that. But are are the brands getting it right? Are they making it? easy enough maybe are they making it too easy uh let's just close out on your thoughts on how to get right uh doing a a special watch with the group and maybe what to avoid
1: yeah great question well um you know first of all i would i would echo what you just said how cool is it going to be you know for for a collector 20 years from now when the black bay 58 you know that was made in you know in black and blue and you know a handful of other colors all of a sudden starts showing up on whatever the the future version of ebay is with you know Somebody's face on it or something. is going to think that it's it. eBay. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, and and so I'm wholly supportive of it. Like I said, we've done a couple. It's a it's actually a, a stressful process. I think that it, um, you know, it, it, there's a lot that goes into it. So you know, I, I think you know that, that folks. Probably need to give that a lot of consideration when they do it, but I love to see it happen. Some brands are super open to it. Nomos has been great; they, they've been fantastic in in working with us and you know sharing ideas. And yeah, they've they've thrown their design team behind a, a watch that you know I think I think we kept it to around thirty watches. I, there's no financial reason for them to do that. I, I really appreciate that. Um, on the other hand, there are brands that will never consider the idea. I you know, think back, I'm a big Omega collector. I love Omega for uh, a million different reasons and I won't go on about that but I think back because Omega had this this history, recent history, um, especially Speedmaster of just, you know, limited edition after limited edition after limited edition. I remember, you know, Hodinkee doing their 10th anniversary and I can remember, you know, a couple others of these kinds of things and even Omega, I get the sense, doesn't want to do any of that stuff anymore. It's not, you know, it's not it, wasn't, it wasn't
0: an amazing idea for them. Also, what ended up happening is that the more they focused on those limited ones, the less people focused on the core collection. And yeah. they had a real problem with that. So I don't know exactly yeah. where they're at right now. But that's what ends up happening when all you talk about is right. the sort of buzzy watches. All the attention goes away from what they actually need to sell to make money.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think going forward, the the collaboration thing—at least the way I'd love to see it go—and I don't know if it makes sense in this space either—but I'd love to see the collaboration thing focus on on the small brands, on you know, on some of these people that are out there really busting their tails to, to produce watches and and you know try and do it in an affordable way and stuff. I, I think there's just so many cool opportunities there. I, what I probably just as a collector, you know, forget my involvement in, in OC Chrono or the Chrono Group. But as a collector, what I don't really, you know, I'm not that focused on, I don't really care that much about are those collaborations done with large brands. And I think they're I think they're kind of slowing down. I think, well, back to Omega. I mean Omega at least for the time being, they said they won't do, you know, a limited edition. Now I know they're releasing watches that are, you know, clearly limited production, but you know, I, I think we're seeing that slow down in that space. But I would love to see some small, you know, cutting-edge brands get involved and and collect the collector community get involved with those. To me,
0: that's kind of exciting. That's that's kind of fun. Awesome. And because we're at the end of the show, Michael, please let everyone know where they can find you on the internet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so personally, you can connect with me on my Instagram, uh, Hamond, m-h-a-y-m-o-n-d, 321. Um, the 321 is probably pretty obvious being a uh, speedmaster guy. Um, and then for uh, the Chrono group, and I have to say, we're, we're slowly stepping away a little bit from Instagram. So please don't look for daily updates, but we still do look at, at our direct messages and stuff for anybody that wants to reach out. Um, OC underscore chrono um, or Chrono group. Uh, I think it's Chrono underscore group are great places to to send a DM. Um, but you're always welcome to just you know, shoot me a message directly. I love to engage with people and, and I look at I'm kind of selfish. I have to confess, but I look at my own Instagram probably more frequently than I do the others. so
0: yeah <laughs> uh, Michael Heyman, the co-founder of OC chrono Chrono Group. Thank you so much.
1: Ariel, well, thank you. And, and not only for having me on, but for what you do. I think community know, really appreciates you.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.